0: if you'd like to get a little head start on where we go in the church world there are three main schools of thought concerning the subject of uh, healing one group believes that the apostles healed after jesus was raised from the dead but their healing abilities were because they were his apostles and therefore, when the last apostle died, all that healing power was done away with. The second school of thought is that God can and, and will sometimes heal today. But it always has to be as a result of some special manifestation of power or some special act of faith on the part of the individual. Then the third group, the third school of thought concerning healing from physical healing from sickness and disease is that it was part of God's plan of redemption and part of what Jesus paid for, the price that he paid, by shedding his own blood as our substitute. Now folks, the reason that this is important is because there's only one of those groups that lends itself to believing that it's the will of God for everybody to be healed. And without a doubt, The number one question on people's minds is, is it God's will to heal me? Well, if healing is a part of the redemption that Jesus has purchased for us and accomplished for us, that question is answered for everyone under every circumstance. But you know as well as I do that not everybody is successful in reaching out and taking hold of their healing by faith, whether it's a lack of knowledge or uh, not being fully persuaded that it is in God's plan of redemption or not being persuaded that they are able, with their own faith, to take hold of faith that, uh, take hold of the healing that exists because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so because not everybody is successful in receiving their healing, it causes many people to doubt God's willingness to heal anyone, much less everyone. So let's take these three schools of thought one by one. And see if we can identify what the Bible says about this. Acts chapter 3. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, laying from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. The reason they put him there was to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms? He's asking for money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And when he gave heed to them, expecting to receive something of them, he's expecting money, then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered in with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. He's there every day. Everybody knows this guy. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. He's so excited he won't let these guys go. All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering and when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel you at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Now folks, if healing occurred in the early days of the church because of the special relationship the apostles had with, with God himself or the special power that they had because they were apostles, who would know better than the apostles themselves? I mean, if God had given them, if Jesus had transferred to them some special power that was not to continue, healing power that was not to continue beyond the last apostle's life, when the last apostle died, all of it goes away, in other words. Or if they had some special relationship with God that's not available to everybody, wouldn't they know? I know that I have a special relationship with God that the unsaved don't have. Don't you know that too? So then we would have to understand, have to conclude, that if they've got special power or special holiness that enables them to heal the sick, they should know it. But that's the very thing that Peter says it's not. Let's read this verse again. When Peter saw it, saw everybody running unto them, marveling at this healing miracle that's been done in this crippled man he answered unto the people you men of israel why marvel you at this well the answer to that's pretty easy because not everybody's doing what they just did many of these people have never seen something like that happen before you men of israel why marvel you at this or why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk he's saying unequivocally this has nothing to do with us This has nothing to do with us having some special holiness beyond what somebody else could have or having some special power beyond what somebody else could have. They're not denying the power of God. They're not denying that they've been made holy or righteous by the blood of Jesus. They're just saying that's not what's causing this. Well, if that isn't what's causing it, that creates a problem with the first school of thought in the body of Christ about the apostles having special power or special relationship with God that enabled them to heal the sick. But if it's not special relationship, if it's not special power that they and only they have, what did make the man well? What did heal this crippled man? Verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, have glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you desired the Holy One and just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life. Whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now here's the answer to what did it. Here's the answer to the power. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, which you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The faith which is by him, that may be a reference, not we're not entirely sure, but it may have been a reference to the gift of faith in operation. He may be saying the faith that I used in the name of Jesus was a manifestation of the Holy Ghost as Paul described to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But clearly, he's not excluding anybody else from having access to this power. He says his power that's in the name of Jesus, the power that's in the name of Jesus has made this man strong or healed this crippled man whom you see and know. Now folks, have you ever heard anybody say the power in the name of Jesus has been done away with? Nobody would dare, no Christian would dare say anything like that. No Christian would dare say that Jesus is less powerful now than he was in the early days of the church or when he was here on the earth and performing healings and miracles during the three years of his ministry. Nobody would dare say that the power in the name of Jesus has diminished in any way or any form whatsoever. Well, Peter said it was the power in the name of Jesus that made the man strong. So if the power in the name of Jesus is the same today as it was back then, it will perform the same healing works that it did that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Amen. Now I want you to turn with, with me to Mark chapter 9. Let's take the second school of thought here about, that exists in, he, in the, the body of Christ concerning healing. And again, I'll remind you of what that is. Some in the church believe that God can heal, certainly, The power in the name of Jesus is still the same as we referred to just a moment ago, but it only responds to some special act of faith or some event where the power of God is made manifest. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus ought to know, shouldn't he? Mark chapter 9, verse 16 Jesus comes upon a group. Verse 16, and he asks the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I believe all evil spirits are dumb, but this one is talking about forbidding or uh, prohibiting the individual to speak, the son to speak. And wheresoever he taketh him, he tears him, and he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now let's stop right there before we read any further. Prior to this point in time, Jesus has given to his disciples authority over all sickness and disease and to cast out devils. They had the ability to do this work that the man is looking for for his, father, uh, the, looking for for his son. They have the ability to do it. Matthew chapter 10 clearly tells us that Jesus delivered to his disciples Power over sickness and disease and authority over evil spirits. So Jesus comes back without having any other information. He hears that his disciples were unable to do what he knows he's already delegated power for them to be able to do. And Jesus answers him. He's talking to the father. He doesn't turn and talk to the disciples yet. He answers the father and said, "O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer or be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, please notice as we look back in verse 19, Jesus answered him, the Father. And he identifies the Father as being part of a faithless generation. Well, faithless means without faith, doesn't it? So, what is the problem that Jesus is lamenting in verse 19? That at least the individual, he calls it, he includes him in a generation. But specifically, the father that he's speaking to and addressing is without faith. Now folks, we know something that the father doesn't know. We know that of the 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry, and of course that doesn't take into account the multitudes that were healed or the groups like the 10 lepers that were healed. But there are 19 individual cases of healing in the four gospels. Seems like there's more than that because some of the Gospels give us redundant, uh, repetitive accounts of the same incidents. But if you take them all apart, there's 19 individual cases of healing. And of those 19 individual cases, 13 of them specifically refer and identify the faith of the individual as being the, the quickening agent, the instigation of the healing that takes place. Now, there are a couple others that imply faith but don't come right out and specifically identify it. But if you take the ones that specifically identify faith on the part of the individual and add the the other two or three that imply faith, it's well over 70% of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry that we have record of. Now, we don't have record of everything. John said if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then in my thinking, that has to mean there were more healings. There were more healing events than we have record of. Well, then why do we have just the ones we have? Again, we have to conclude by understanding how God works and the the faithfulness of the Holy Ghost in giving us a record. We have to conclude that the 19 individual cases we have cover every aspect of the healing work of God on the earth. We have to be able to conclude that these 19 individual cases tell us everything we need to know so that we can walk in the fullness of God's ability and in the full knowledge of what belongs to us concerning healing, uh, physical healing from sickness and disease. We know that faith is a necessary component. This father doesn't seem to know that. So Jesus again answers him. He's talking to the father and he says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer? You bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, brought the Son unto Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, straightway the Spirit tore him. Here's the evil spirit trying to create a dust-up in the presence of Jesus. I don't know what his intent was. He's probably squirming trying to get away from somebody that he knows knows that they have authority over him. But straightway the Spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked the Father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father answered, since he was a child. That doesn't necessarily mean since birth, but since he was young at least. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, I want you to understand something else. This man has no shred of doubt as far as where this evil spirit has come from. He's not questioning, is this God's will for for my son's life? He's not questioning in any way if this is a good thing or a bad thing. He doesn't come to Jesus like the leper did in Matthew chapter 8, saying, Master, if you will, you can heal me. He has no questions whatsoever on the will of God to heal. He has no doubt that this is an evil thing, the evidence of that is the times that through this child's life or this son's life. We don't know how old he is now. But there have been numerous times where this evil spirit tried to destroy his life. Casting him into the fire, casting him into the water and so forth. Now Jesus asked him how long this has been this way. I'm not sure why that was necessary for him to know. Since it's been a long time, I would imagine that that would explain a little bit on the father's tentative nature concerning the will of God to heal his son. I can't imagine any father that hasn't been agonizing in prayer for a long, long time in this same situation that he's in with his son. I know one of the toughest things I've ever had to deal with is the devil coming after my kids. I'd much rather him come after me because I know what to do. I know that I've taught my kids what to do, too. But my tendency is to try to do it for them. We can't do that, of course. We have to let our kids find out God is just as faithful for them as we found out that he's faithful to us. But again, I'm just trying to put myself in the place of this father. He's in a desperate situation. And the longer and longer things go, the more the devil has opportunity to chip away at your belief in this case he's destroyed any faith that the father might have ever had so he answers and he says it's been since he was a child and oftentimes it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him now notice this statement but if thou canst do anything have compassion on us and help us this guy's at the place where he doesn't know what can be done now he was at least hopeful we have to Assume that he was at least hopeful when he brought his son to Jesus and his disciples the first time. We didn't read the previous verses. But we know that Jesus was at the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And so when the father comes to the disciples expecting to see Jesus, I'm sure. Jesus isn't there and the disciples tried to cast the evil spirit out of this boy and failed. That's the only way that they would know that they couldn't do it. If they had tried unsuccessfully so whatever hopefulness this father had whether it was faith or not we don't know maybe he came in faith and the inability of the disciples to help him destroyed what faith he had that is a possibility or it's also possible that he came hoping that Jesus would do something because he's heard many things of miracles and healings and so forth that Jesus has performed in other situations for other people And so maybe he's just coming in desperation and just in hope. But regardless how he started out, we know that by the time Jesus begins to speak to him, he is without faith of any type whatsoever. So this is the source of what he says. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, the King James really doesn't bring out what the original translation Tries to convey. When Jesus says unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Jesus literally says, If I can, if I can. Well, at this point, the father doesn't know if he can or not. He doesn't take the position that these flunky disciples you've got weren't any help to me, but I still believe in you, so help my son. So Jesus turns it around and says, if I can. Now, folks, Jesus knows something that the disciples didn't know. He knows that he has to inspire faith in some way or another in this guy. And this guy, after being inspired in faith, has to act on his faith if he's going to get results for his son. Now, here's a question I've gotten for you. Does Jesus want the son delivered? Is it the will of God... For this son to be free absolutely absolutely but Jesus recognizes there is no manifestation of power here there were times where Jesus healed people on his own faith or by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost but that's not the case here and Jesus knows that it's not the case he knows that he doesn't have special power He knows that he doesn't have a special anointing. He knows that there's no special manifestation of the Spirit that's going to bring healing, the healing power of God onto the scene to heal this son. So he knows, therefore, the only possible way that this son can be healed is if he gets the Father to speak his faith. Now, folks, even this far, without going further and showing you what happened, even this far, dispels the second school of thought about healing in the body of Christ for those that believe God can heal but he only does in response to some special act of faith or some special power this story dispels that and the fact that it's happening in Jesus ministry and not in the apostles ministry identifies for us that this is the way that it would have to be with everybody It'd be real easy for us to look at the failure of the apostles in this situation and say, well, if it happened after the resurrection, and say, well, yeah, but if Jesus was here, he would have done differently. I want you to see what Jesus is having to do here. Even though he's anointed with the healing power of God, even though the Bible says that he has the spirit without measure, that means he's got the fullness of the Holy Ghost in every possible respect. Well, the fullness of the Holy Ghost would be the fullness of power. But Jesus has got to get this Father in faith if that power is going to be released and work for him. So Jesus responds and says, if I can. Then he says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Even though the disciples have failed, even though the the Father has come to the place where he doesn't know what to think or doesn't know what to believe, Jesus simply says, It's never a matter of what God can do. It's always a matter of what you can believe for. And straightway the father of the son tried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Now we know, again, we know probably more than this guy knew, this father knew. We know a lot about how the word of faith works. We know a lot about his, how this thing called faith receives and takes hold of the things of God. It says faith is based on your words. But we also know that the Bible warns us against wavering. In other words, speaking the word from our heart is choosing to believe God's words true no matter what the things look like. But the Bible requires us, Jesus required us in Mark chapter 11 verse 23 to not doubt in our heart. In other words, you can't say, you can't speak faith on one hand and doubt and unbelief on the other hand and expect to get results. The Bible says that's wavering, that's being double-minded, and a double-minded man should not ever expect to receive anything from God. And so this guy is right on the edge of unbelief. In other words, let's say it this way, his statement of faith is not strong faith in action. He doesn't take a position with Jesus and say, yeah, well, you're right. I know that I'm supposed to believe no matter what. And so regardless of what I see and how things appear with my son going through this seizure before my eyes, I believe that you came to the earth to heal all that were sick. If he had said that, that would have been a marvelous place and I'm sure Jesus would have commended him for his great faith. But instead, what the father says is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And just that much faith was enough for Jesus to turn this situation around. Just that much faith, which to me doesn't look like a lot. I wouldn't expect to receive anything if I said the same thing knowing what I know from the Scripture. I'm sure you would concur. But just that much faith, the mustard seed faith of this Father speaking, Lord, I believe, Now, folks, can I suggest to you that with him watching his son having this seizure, no telling what kind of emotional response that's triggering in the father. His emotions have to be going haywire. When he says, Lord, I believe, it has to be a choice, not some deep-seated feeling of what he expects God to do. When he says, Lord, I believe, that's simply him him making a choice to agree with what Jesus said. That's all he's doing. And that was enough. He cries out and says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. Now, the, the rent him sore, we kind of pass over that a little bit. That means things looked worse before they got better. This seizure was in, uh, this seizure increased in his son. Whatever was going on in his son, the circumstances of this evil spirit working against him, working against the son, increased. Things don't always go right from looking bad to looking good. Sometimes when we step out in faith, things appear worse than they were before. I've had so many people throughout the time that I've been pastoring the church say things like, man, I didn't have this much trouble before I started standing on the word. Seems like when I started trying to use my faith, that's when the devil really increased his attacks against us. And folks, that's the way it works sometimes. But that doesn't change the truth of the word. The severity of the devil's attacks or the frequency of his attacks or anything else related to those attacks does not change the truth of God's word one little bit. So the Son cried out, or the Spirit, I'm sorry, cried out and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. If people had a chance to look at him and assess the situation and say, I think he's dead, then that means he had to be still for a little time this was not an instantaneous thing this was not an immediate thing that took place the devil is making his last gasp by renting, it, renting the child tearing him even more severely than he was before and then even when the evil spirit came out it looked like the son had died again we don't have any information about the father but can you imagine the emotions that are running through him The thoughts that are running through his mind. But notice he doesn't say anything. Thank God he didn't say anything. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was come out of the house, or come into the house, his disciples asked him privately and said, Why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, other gospel accounts of this add a little something to it Jesus said because of your unbelief howbeit this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting let me ask you a question people get hung up on the prayer and fasting did Jesus had to start praying when he saw the sun? well then he had to have been prepared in prayer ahead of time right so the prayer that he requires or says this type of evil spirit requires may certainly have something to do with the length of time that he's been there. Maybe that's why Jesus asked, how long has he been like this? But irrespective, regardless of that, Jesus didn't have to pray and fast. He was already prepared ahead of time. So he has to be talking to to his disciples about preparation. Now let's look at the other side. What about fasting? Does fasting change you? Well, let's, let's ask it the other way first. Does fasting change God? Does fasting make God more willing to heal the sick than he is beforehand? Fasting doesn't change God at all. Does fasting change the sick? Not at all. Fasting has only one impact or one effect, one result, and that's on the person who does the fasting. Now, what does fasting do? Does fasting empower you? no see if power was, was increased by fasting the Bible would give us a lot more information about how often we should fast than it does in fact the Bible never tells us that we have to fast so then what does fasting do it makes mo- us more aware of spiritual things than we are natural things and that's the only benefit there is to fasting we might get some health benefits by closing our mouths instead of continuing to eat. But the only real result that the Bible identifies where fasting is concerned is that it makes us more aware of spiritual things. It helps us get our eyes on spiritual things, things of the spirit realm, rather than just things of the flesh. So when Jesus says, and again we're adding the other gospel accounts of this situation together, when Jesus says, because of your unbelief, He's specifically telling them, you shouldn't have let your lack of success change the authority and the power that I gave you over sickness and disease and over evil spirits. They must have tried and failed and said, oh my goodness, it's not working. But the reason it wasn't working wasn't because they had some shortage of power. The reason that it wasn't working is because the father was not expressing any area or any degree of faith whatsoever what jesus changed about the uh, was only about the father he didn't do anything about casting the evil spirit out of this boy that the disciples couldn't have done themselves the only thing that was different is jesus identified that the father was without faith the power will not work without faith you remember in mark chapter 6 where jesus went to his hometown in nazareth he stands up and he preaches from what we know of as Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and so forth he says to them I know what you're thinking you're thinking that I should do the same works here that I did in Capernaum which means he's done healing works before and it also means that they have heard about it but they refuse to believe And the Bible says in Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, and he could there in Nazareth do no mighty work. It does not say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. If you look up the word couldn't, it has to do with ability. He was unable to do any healing works or healing miracles in Nazareth. The only thing he was able to do was heal a few folks with minor uh, illnesses, ailments. He didn't have any blind eyes open in Nazareth. He might have had the cough and the flu leave somebody's body, something smaller like that, but nothing that would be considered a healing work, a great healing work. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, folks, think about that. Here's the Son of God who's anointed with the Holy Ghost without limit. He has the Spirit without measure. That means he's got all the Holy Ghost that there is. And he couldn't in Nazareth heal the sick. It doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. He was prevented because of their unbelief well if the unbelief of Nazareth the town of Nazareth kept him from being able to heal the sick or having any significant healing works or miracle results healing results or miracles how much more so would that be true where the disciples were concerned but they didn't recognize the importance of faith so Jesus said your unbelief kept this from working he expected them or certainly expects us at the very least To recognize that faith is a requirement. It's a prerequisite for the power of God to work. Now is it some great manifestation of faith? Is it some great event where the Holy Ghost does something out of the ordinary? That faith should be or has to be expressed by? No, it's a simple faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So the school of thought that it takes some special event or some special occurrence of faith or power for the healing power of God to raise somebody else up, apparently Jesus didn't know that. Because this was faith in its simplest form, not even in its purest form, but in its simplest form. Well, that leaves us with one school of thought, and that is that healing is in God's plan of redemption. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53 beginning in verse 1 every bible scholar identifies this the 53rd chapter of isaiah as the messianic chapter everything about chapter 53 of isaiah speaks to the messiah speaks of the work that the messiah will do as the sacrifice for mankind verse 1 who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the lord revealed notice the first thing the bible talks about in the messianic chapter is the necessity of faith who has believed our report and to whom is the harm of the Lord revealed? Well, who is the power? The arm of the Lord means the power of God. To whom is the power of God revealed? The ones that believe the report. And only those that believe the report. Just as we've said and just as we looked at in a couple of different scriptures, faith is the requirement, the prerequisite to seeing the power of God in manifestation. For he shall grow up before him, talking about Jesus, growing up before his father as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Look up these words sorrow and grief. You'll find out that sorrow means pains. Grief means sickness. There are other times, several other times in the Old Testament where this word grief is translated the same Hebrew word grief is translated sickness. There are several other places in the Old Testament where this word sorrows is translated pains. Why did the translators not add it, or did not? were they not faithful to the translation that they gave to this word in other places? Folks, I only have to assume that it was beyond anything that they could accept to be true. And certainly sorrows and griefs masks, it doesn't do away with the truth that's being conveyed, but it masks it. It covers it up. But look these words up. Don't take my word for it. Look it up for yourself. You'll find out that this means he is despised, man, uh, despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and a great with sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, the only time the word surely is in this messianic chapter is in verse 4. Surely, truly, he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I want you to notice something, folks. These first few, ch- first few verses of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is focusing on healing from sickness and disease as a part of the Messiah's work. He hasn't said one thing yet that has to do with sin. He hasn't said one thing yet that has to do with Jesus taking our sin upon him. He starts off talking about healing physical healing for the body. He starts off talking about believing the report connected to or associated with physical healing for our bodies. And without saying one word about the work that Jesus did as our sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world, he hasn't said one thing about that. And he says, surely, truly, verily, he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. I get quite amused at some people thinking that or claiming that healing is a side issue with God and it's, we place much more importance on it than it should be. Well, I, I guess they need to go back and tell Isaiah that, don't we? Because when the Holy Ghost inspires Isaiah to say these, write down these words and to speak this truth, he starts off talking about physical healing. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now he's going to start talking about sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now the difference between transgressions and iniquities have to do with original sin and personal sin. It means Jesus paid the price for, your, for Adam's original sin which brought the world under the bondage of sin and death. But then he also paid the price for your personal sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, the word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area and it's translated in many places in the Old Testament as the word prosperity. Now that's the first thing God talked to Abraham about when he instructed Abraham to follow him and he'd lead him to a land that he would give to him. First thing he talked to him about was blessing him. We find out that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it and the Bible says in a very short period of time that Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now, when you talk about these things, a lot of times people feel like we put undue importance on it. But please recognize that Jesus considered it to be important enough to shed his blood for. I don't want to put undue influence on prosperity. I don't want to try to act like prosperity is the main or the only thing or the most important thing. But it was important enough for Jesus to pay the price for with his own blood. So to ignore it would be to do a disservice to the blood of Jesus. Things get quiet when you start talking like that. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus shed blood for sin. He shed blood for poverty. He shed blood for sickness. And it's all encapsulated in one verse in the Messianic chapter. I like the fact that it's in one verse because you can't say that one part of that verse is any more important than another part of the verse. They all carry equal weight when it comes to the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood. How dare we try to take it apart? How dare the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the blood of Jesus was shed, how dare the church try to take part of this verse out and say it doesn't belong to us? If we can take any part of this verse and say that it doesn't belong to the church today, or the people of God today, what's to say that the rest of it belongs to us anymore any or either? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Let's keep reading verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now he's talking about sin. He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. The Father God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. This word laid is interesting because I think so many times, at least this is the idea that I had, and it's wrong. But I grew up with the idea that God laid the sickness of, of mankind on Jesus like you would put a coat on somebody's shoulders. But this word laid is an intercessor's term. It literally means to make intercession. So where it's talking about how God put upon Jesus the iniquity of us all, the New Testament gives us much more insight into what actually took place. It gives us a commentary, if you will, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus, it says, But God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It says God made Jesus to be sin." He made Jesus to be sin. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to such an extreme degree that he sweats great drops of blood. Remember that? And he's praying. He prays three different times. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, Folks, remember, with those that believe, all things are possible. So it was possible for this cup to pass away from Jesus. But Jesus is simply saying, if there's any other way to effect redemption for mankind without me having to suffer the agonies of the crucifixion and the three days of punishment in the belly of the earth. Then let it be that way. But then he concludes and says, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. Jesus knew what it would cost. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the cross. He despised the work that he would have to do to bring mankind into relationship with their heavenly father. He despised it, but he stayed steady for the joy that was set before him. He knew what he would pay for. He knew what it would affect. He knew that it would make the sinners righteous. He knew that it would bring us into a place where we could have full and open communion with God. He knew that it would bring us into the same place as he had with God himself when he was here on the earth. And that joy kept him steady. That joy enabled him to not open his mouth when he was being challenged by unrighteous men. It kept him steady when he was being beaten in Pilate's court. It kept him steady when he was being nailed to the cross. And it kept him steady when he was hanging on the cross as your and my substitute and Savior. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means the Lord made him to be sick, or made him to be sin. His nature changed, he died spiritually. He was separated from God as he was made to be sin, And that's what he's sweating blood for in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows all these things are coming to pass. He went through in, into this with his eyes wide open. Now the disciples, with all that God had told them, there were many, many things that they didn't understand until after the fact. And then they could look back and say, oh. But we come from a position where we can look back to identify what took place. And with the agony that Jesus suffered, and I'm not just talking about physical pain. The physical part of it was probably the least part of it. But with the horror of being eternally separated from God. The last thing Jesus said on the cross was, Father, into your, heart, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. His spirit left his body. From that point, he has truly been made sin. As an identifying factor, there were three hours when he hung on the cross when darkness ensued. It was the kind of darkness that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. So much so that the Roman soldiers that crucified him and were in charge of his crucifixion said, Surely this must have been the Son of God. Jesus paid a big price for you, to, you and I to be free from sin and spiritual death and poverty and sickness. Wouldn't it be a shame if we failed to take advantage of it when it cost him so dearly? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. That phrase cut off from the land of the living is an Old Testament term. It's speaking to the scapegoat. On the day of atonement there were two sacrifices that were made. Two lambs or two rams or bulls or whatever. However you want to identify the Sacrificial animals. Were brought before the high priest. And he cast lots to see which one would be which. They both would uh, play an important role in the atonement of the sins of Israel. The one lamb was chosen to be slain, and so it was taken and prepared for the slitting of the throat to gather the blood, to sprinkle the blood in the Holy of Holies. But the other lamb, the other animal, was considered to be the scapegoat. And the high priest would put his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and he would pronounce every sin of Israel. They would go through this long and elaborate list to identify every sin that they could think of or that they knew of, that mankind knew of, and it would symbolically be transferred onto that animal. Then the animal was to be led by a strong man. There's specific instructions given in the Bible about how it worked. He was to be led by a strong man out into the wilderness, and the wilderness is called the land that's uh, uh, cut off, led out into a land where he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, they didn't know, and we, but we know that being cut off from the land of the living was the deepest part of hell. It was the place of the unrighteous dead. See, folks, the type of, sin, the type of death that Jesus died means everything when it comes to us and what we have. If Jesus died the death of the righteous, meaning if he left the earth, his body, his spirit left his body, And he went to Abraham's bosom. The place of paradise. The place of comfort. Then somebody still has to die the death of the unrighteous. Or else you and I have to pay the price ourselves. But if Jesus' spirit left his body and went into the lowest part of the earth. The place of the unrighteous dead. Then that means. That just as he was made to be sin. His nature was changed to be a sin nature that means our our nature changes from being a sinful people to being made the righteousness of God in him see it's not a cloak that's put on our back it's who we become because it wasn't sin and death was not a cloak that was put on jesus back it's who he became verse 9 he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death this word death is interesting because it's plural jesus died two deaths he died a physical death and he was placed in a rich man's tomb his body was placed in a rich man's tomb but he also died spiritually he was made he made his grave with the with the rich in his spiritual death you remember the the story that jesus told about the rich man and lazarus he said there was a certain rich man which fared sumptuously every day, he had a lot to eat, had a, everything was going good for him. but he wound up in the pit of hell and seeing Lazarus in Abraham's bosom afar off, he cried and looked for comfort. You remember the story? Well, the rich were uh, the riches identified in scripture, in many scriptures as being the wicked. And it typifies or symbolizes, People that care more about the things of the earth, this material realm, than those that care about spiritual things. Now, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being rich. If there's something wrong with being rich, then God did wrong by making Abraham rich. But it's a symbolic thing. So when it says Jesus was, uh, was with the rich in his deaths, both physical death and spiritual death, and he made his grave with the wicked, it's talking about Jesus' spirit having to complete the work, the finished work. See, folks, if salvation was accomplished and finished when Jesus died on the cross, where did he go for three days? And why would it be necessary for him to be anywhere for three days? If the physical death on the cross was the thing that paid the price, why didn't he just come down ten seconds after he died? Maybe he stays up there long enough for everybody to see that he's really dead and then comes down off the cross. That would have made the point, but it wouldn't have paid the price for sin. It wouldn't have paid the price for spiritual death that held us in bondage. He made his grave with the wicked and was with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Notice verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That translation is a little bit hard for me. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord for him to pay the punishment and pay the price for sin and death, for poverty and for sickness. Well, yeah, that's why God did it, because he was pleased for the price to be paid for you and on your behalf. Notice what it says about this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. This word grief is the word sickness. Other translations say God has made him sick. Now, in the same way that we quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. He changed his nature from righteousness to sin, in other words, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, there was a complete exchange. Our sinful nature was made unto Jesus so that we were made his righteous nature. In the same way that God made him to be sin to deliver you and me from sin, God made Jesus to be sick or sickness itself that we would be delivered from sickness by his stripes we are healed let's finish this up yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has made him sick when, you shall make his, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here's the joy that was set before Jesus. The family of God was the joy that kept him in place when he could have used his power all up until the point where he committed his spirit into the hands of his Father. Anything prior to that, Jesus was still under control. He could call the 12 legions of angels to get him down off the cross, he could stop the sacrificial work on a dime. But once he placed his spirit in the hands of his father, he's no longer in control. He's subject to whatever is necessary, whatever punishment is just. Verse 12, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because that he has poured out his soul unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let me close with one final scripture, and that's over in Matthew chapter eight. In case we needed to know what it meant when the Bible says Jesus was made to be sick, that we through his stripes would be healed. Matthew eight sixteen, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. The Holy Ghost in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Holy Ghost gives us a divine commentary on what Isaiah 53, 4 really means. Now what was necessary to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah? Healing for all. We know that the prophecy wasn't fully completed and fulfilled. Until Jesus died on the cross, according to what, Matthew, uh, according to what Isaiah 53:4 tells us, or Isaiah 53:5 tells us, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The fulfillment of the, of the uh, price for sin, the payment for sin, wasn't fulfilled until Jesus paid the price on the cross, right? We know that. But during Jesus' earthly ministry, He forgave sins. Well, was the forgiveness of sins that he offered to people in his earthly ministry? Was that the fulfillment of what Isaiah said? It showed what the fulfillment of what Isaiah said would look like. In the same way, when Jesus healed the sick here on the earth, even in Matthew 8:16, where he healed all that were sick, was that the complete fulfillment of Jesus paying the price? No, that had to occur on the cross. But here's what it looked like. It looked like healing for all. See, the part that fulfills what Isaiah said at this point in time in Matthew chapter 8 was the healing of everybody. Third school of thought is healing, physical healing for the body or healing for the physical body is a part of God's plan for redemption. So there is never any doubt if it's God's will to heal you and me. There's no more doubt of God's will to heal than there would be for God's will to save Or to offer the new birth to anybody and everybody. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. I will in no wise cast him out. Well, if that's true for sin, it has to be true for sickness. Because the same thing that Jesus paid the price for sin with, which was his blood, was what he used to pay the price for sickness and disease. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Jesus said, I came not to the earth to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. So we have to understand and, and conclude that what these verses say about what Jesus did was the will of God. What is the will of God in this in this thing regarding sickness and disease? Healing for all. Because it's part of God's plan of redemption. There will never be a time, there will never be an instance, there will never be a sickness, there will never be anything in any manner whatsoever that God will not want you healed of. He always wants you well. He always wants you to walk in his health. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for quickening your word to our hearts. We choose to say, Father, from our hearts, not because of how things look in our life or in our body, but we choose to say that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. Lord, we believe. We thank you that healing is available for all. We thank you for healing our bodies and setting us free from the law of sin and death. We declare that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, because he dwells in us, he quickens our mortal bodies, he raises us up, he restores our health and heals our wounds. In Jesus' preciousness,